You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Sam Brown, who came to prominence in the late 80s with her hit single Stop and the album of the same name, is no stranger to loss. Her mother died during a difficult period in her career. Her star, in terms of record sales, had faded, but she had started to discover that being a true artist is more than commercial success. Now, I hate to have favourites, but this two-part interview with Sam is one of the most revealing interviews I've conducted in my career. And although Sam can't remember me from back then, which is not a problem, this interview is really about two people who bond over what connects them. The love of Sam Brown's music and loss. Sam Brown, we've met before. And my overriding memory of you, although you probably won't even remember me, but we have met before, my overriding memory of you is this innate warmth and kindness. And it really is true. That's when I met you, I just thought, oh, this is really a lovely, warm and kind human being. And it's funny because I I mean, I don't say it when I don't mean it. And I've met so many <laughs> pop stars and they don't always have that I'm not saying this you know there's very really bad people but I'm saying that they don't really even you know that doesn't come through as a human being but with you it was a really overriding feeling that I had so I'm thrilled oh well it's lovely lovely to see you and meet you where did I meet you Um, I met you with fish oh okay yeah. Right in, in the Scotland. Studio. Yep, that's right. In in Scotland, that was in that uh, that period of your and, life. Then, and what were you what were you doing there? Well, I was working for MTV at the time and doing okay, all the interviews. So, so I used to present oh, the okay. news, what and then you, my job was you, to yeah. interview the pop stars. See, I told you you won't remember me. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I'm really sorry. Uh, yeah, my I ego, think my ego is that you should remember me. Anyhow, I'm gonna I'm gonna fire right in. And okay. there is obviously going to be lots of questions, which I'm sure you've been over before, but I'm going to try and come with a new angle with some of them. And um, basically, the first thing is because I remember when I was growing up as a, as a, a young kid and anything my mum played or anything my dad played, I immediately rejected now when you come up when you grow up in a musical family I'm just wondering did you grow up and think oh god dad's music can't stand it oh god mum's singing on this don't like that what was your reaction and when did you actually probably as a teenager start to develop your own musical taste okay I just before because this is the first time I've been able to get a word in edgeways Steve uh, before we go any further am I allowed to swear you are allowed to do anything. You oh, like. okay. I just wanted to check. I just wanted to double check, you know. Um, okay, so the answer is I couldn't stand my dad's taste in music. Well, actually, it wasn't so much that. It's just the music he played was like uh, country music, and which I really didn't like country music. However, my mother had fantastic musical taste. She liked Earth, Wind & Fire, Aretha Franklin, Thelma Houston, Ricky Lee Jones I think I, I don't know if I, I may have discovered Ricky Lee Jones on my own I think actually uh, but all the old soul stuff the proper American uh, soul and blues so I loved my mum's taste in music and there were many parties at our house because they were very much sort of um, you know they were always having parties and always on tour so very much a musician's lifestyle although um, I, I hasten to add in some ways, both coming from quite working class backgrounds, well, very working class backgrounds, 
they were very grounded. You know, they weren't sort of big drug takers or, you know, there was probably a bit of dope going around. I imagine it was everywhere in those days. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ugly in any way. It, it was just everyone was always having a good time. And I remember often dancing around the living room to Quincy Jones or, you know, singing along to Aretha or whatever it was. Uh, so there was that. And I think I started developing my own taste, really. Um, I loved that soul and blues, although at that age, I suppose I would have been about 11 or 12. So I didn't really recognise the value of blues music in our culture as we recognise it today. Um, and all my friends were into punk rock. And then I start, I was listening to Kate Bush, uh, um, Ricky Lee Jones. Uh, my dad actually put me onto Randy Newman, one of his better likes. I love Small Randy people. Newman. Yeah. Small, short people. A big Small influence people. as a songwriter. His lyrics are amazing and his humour. Um, so, yeah, uh, does that answer the question, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talked about your parents being away on tour a lot and everything. And I, I had a father who was present, but not present, if you sort of get the idea. Yeah, I um, do. I do. Did, was it, you know, were your parents present because I think growing up you know I think a lot of people have the idea of a of a musical family being you know all sitting around the I don't know the hearth and singing along or something and of course that's a load of ball <laughs> in my family was really my father even when he was there he wasn't present and and that really impacted me in my, in my life and because your parents were musicians they would have been away a lot and if you're not yeah. away with them then they're not always present in your life. So how was that for you and how do you feel that impacted you? Well, I certainly I think you're right. And perhaps that's a generation thing or an age thing, because I think our parents, you know, today's parenting, you know, people actually know what parenting is. I mean, that's the first thing, isn't it? You know, uh, I don't, parenting was certainly never discussed. You were just a, really a, an inconvenience, quite a large one. That's how I was brought up, you know, shut up, get out of the room, don't do that, you know, whatever it was, you can't wear that, that sort of thing. Uh, but they were away a lot. We had a lot of nannies or au pairs. Um, and yes, you're right, total bollocks. Uh, nobody sits around the fireplace playing their instruments and singing with their children. Well, perhaps they do, but they didn't in our family. And my dad, <clears throat> I love my dad to bits, but it's taken me a long time to come to terms with who he is you know he wasn't uh, as many uh, dads of that era wasn't particularly nice to to us uh, so I think um, yeah they my dad my dad wasn't present definitely not and there wasn't a connection my mum was very taken up with her career and her life but there was no doubt that she loved us uh, hugely. And, and actually, to be fair, in later life, I think my dad, my dad definitely loves, he loves us to bits and my, you know, all the grandchildren and everything. So um, there wasn't a connection when we were young. No, you're absolutely right. And I would say that, no, they weren't really present. Um, and very often we were left to our own devices. Did you uh, have dreams as a young person? Great. 
<laughs> yeah, well, great. <laughs> in one, one point of view, probably. <laughs> in yeah. another, I'm sure it could be terrifying for the parents yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Did you have dreams of working in any anything else but the music industry? Because if someone said to me, oh, you can do what your dad did, which was a market trader, I would have um, shot myself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I guess we always want what we haven't got, don't we? Um, I, I didn't really think for a minute about what I what I wanted to do. I just did it, and it was never a consideration. So I only really got to actually making real proper adult choices well very late in life because my life sort of took me by the hand and dragged me through it, you know. And I've been incredibly fortunate, and and I've worked very hard as well. Um, uh, but I've I now because I can't sing and I see how real life affects people real life going to work in the same job for 50 years real life having that taken away from you having a pension taken away from you getting ill not having traveled you know real life's pretty fucking grim isn't it let's face it you know so I've been really lucky um, but uh, I've got no idea what I'm talking about. I'm rambling on and I've forgotten my thread completely. <laughs> well, actually, I'll take you to something um, else, because in re- retrospect, when you look back at things, they are slightly different and you have a different view of what happened, you know, to you in your earlier years. And your father had a recording studio and quite some famous people would record in that studio and yeah. you would presumably be there maybe meet them maybe hear them recording and so on yeah who was there and is there any are there any people that you look back on and say oh yeah that's where I grasped this that's where I understood this about a recording process or about how a voice is used or how I don't know how to phrase things yeah Yeah. Um, I think all of that uh, learning about music from other people came much later I learned a lot from my mum and from the people I sang with, I did backing vocals from the age of, I think, 11 or 12. Although I'd done it before that, because, as you say, my dad had one of the first multi-track recording studios in London. Um, I met a few people, but really, you know, celebrity was of no interest to me whatsoever because I was a child. Um, and the people that I I remember we had an engineer at the studio called John Wright, and he used to drive a black Rover 100 And he used to teach us to make little insects out of soldering wire. So that is, you know, that's a very creative thing. And it's very caring of him as an adult to spend time with children, you know, doing that. So I think it was more, I I learned more and not necessarily about music, but I learned more about people through meeting people who worked within the creative field, if you like, because when you do music every day, you're alive every day. You know, you talk about your dad not being present. Um, that's because he was working really hard, probably. And I'm not, I'm not forgiving him or passing any judgment at all. But when you're working within the creative field, if you're doing music or art or if you're on tour, everything changes all the time. Everything around you changes or you work in one place as in a, a studio and the people come through it change, you know, everything changes, the music changes. The, and so you're, you kind of have this ongoing nature of adapt, adaptability, which I think is, you know, it's massive. God, I hesitate to use the word gift, but I can't think of any other word, but it is, you know, it's normal people don't get to experience that. 
and you're it's it really is a fantastic thing to be a part of in every way i mean also developing your musical voice um yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. it sounds a bit weird but uh, to develop that voice I presume that your mother played an, a very important role in that because you you mentioned about the singers that she loved and that's what she introduced you to where do you feel your musical voice started to develop and can you sort of explain that process um I think oh gosh that's really difficult I think my early songs were pretty rubbish actually a lot of them um but uh but is that because there's the depth of which you could go into yourself at that stage because of the life events that happened to you later which we'll come to but the depth the depths of what you could express in those you know in early years is very different to what we can do today as people i'm a writer and and my voice is based in my pain as well and I know when I feed on that pain what I write on the page will move people and it moves me and I imagine it's the same for you it was uh, it is uh, not so much anymore it's different now but you're absolutely right and I think as a child I think that there was I did I did feel pain emotional pain Um, I don't know why I did but I did and I think having two children of my own now I think some people um inherit that that type of personality you know so I think that some people are born with the pain and some people the pain is exacerbated through whatever their life has been up to that moment I was left on my own a lot I was left in charge of a big house a lot when I was very young so from the age of 12 or 13 so and I didn't feel sorry for myself but I was able, but I went into myself. So I'm quite, uh, I tend to go inwards, you know, and I think it came from there. And I think you're right. I think that one connects with a feeling, whether it's pain or happiness, but it's it's actually when you actually really feel a feeling. I mean, the song Stop, I, the, the woman in the song, I think she's obviously, she's a plonker. She should leave the bloke. What on earth is she thinking of, right? And that is so not the person I would think that I am. But I do relate to that, you know, the pain of love. Um, so I'm not quite sure where that came from. But that's that's uh, so stop is an interpretation of a feeling. And I think that all songs are interpretations of feelings, aren't they? As you say, and when you connect with your own feelings, uh, other people can feel that. That's how, that's how I see it, if that makes any sense. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. That's why I'm mentioning it as a voice, because as a voice in terms of what you're trying to express to the world, not in terms of the singing voice, but in terms of the voice within you, it's really important. You know, we see it in all films. That's why we cry during a movie. That's why we're touched, you know, when we go and see a play. That's why a piece of music will motivate us to have some feelings that relate to us not necessary to the person that wrote it. Um, So I think those things are really important. Now you, when you were a young teenager, did your first session work. And I just wondered, it was with, um, I think it was with Steve Marriott, wasn't it? Of the the Small Faces. And your mother was also there. What advice do you remember that she gave you during that process? Because she must have guided you at that time. 
Well, I think, you know, my mum wasn't an advice-giving type of person. My mum was somebody who was very positive. Um, she would have, I don't actually remember any specific words, uh, but I do remember her attitude would have been, it'll be fine, don't worry about it, it's going to be fine, you know, just kind of stick to what you need to do and don't worry about it. So, And also by that time, I'd probably done quite a lot of singing in studios already anyway. So it wasn't like a big reveal. It was, I also knew Steve Marriott very well. He'd been, he was a very good friend of the family. So I knew him well and I'd met all the other guys because they'd been to my dad's studio. So it was, you know, it was really like, they were kind of like, oh yeah, no, Sammy, let, get Sammy on this. We'll have her on it, you know, little little Sammy or whatever they called me. Um, and so it was more that. So it was very much a family event. It wasn't the kind of turning up for professional engagement type of thing. Um, so we, it would have just been a laugh. I mean, everything that I did with my mum and in fact, singing as a professional backing singer, it was always fun. There was never any element of you're not doing your job right or we're not paying you because that wasn't good enough. Although in later years, mum and I did get thrown off a French session for being a bit drunk and raucous, I seem to remember. What um, happened? Well, I don't know. We were probably just giggling and swearing or something. Oh, God, who knows? <laughs> uh, um, I mean, you weren't the only uh, member of the family. You've got a younger brother. Yes, uh, obviously, who's been working with on practically everything, not everything completely, but yeah. practically everything in your life. Um, was there a, a touch of sibling rivalry as you were sort of young or were you always close? Uh, we weren't. We were. No, we weren't always close. We got on OK, um, but we each had our own friends. And then uh, Pete moved into London when he was 16 and became an uh, what we used to call a tape op at Power Plant Studio. So he left home at 16, very young, and he worked with all sorts of fantastic people. And we kind of parted company then for quite a few years because I moved into London at the same time. Well, it was about the same time. I was 17 because I'm a bit older than him. And I just did session work and wrote songs and did a bit of cleaning and a bit of waitressing. So that was that. And we were both in London. Um, and what happened was um, I signed to A&M Records, which took a long time to come about because the guy that I wanted to sign to, Brian Shepherd, was at Phonogram. And then he wanted to, he was leaving Phonogram and it took two years. So they told us they were going to sign us and then we were hanging around for quite a long time. Um, and then basically uh, A&M, Brian and Chris Briggs put me into the studio with a lovely producer called Pete Smith, who did Dream of the Blue Turtles. He's a great producer. But it was very much a kind of, it sounded very sessiony. It was the top, the top session musicians, all of whom are still great friends and lovely people. But it felt a bit clinical to me. It felt a bit sessiony, if I'm honest. And Pete saw it in a different way. I think he saw it more kind of a bit heavier, a bit rough around the edges. And we kind of talked about it. And I would have been 20 at this point, 21. And then we started working together. And then we started to realise that we got on really well. And we worked very well together. So, yeah. So when you say uh, that was a bit ses session-y, how did you move away from that? What was his what, what was his role in that? And how did you actually take it away from that area? Uh, well, I think Pete's very much, uh, he's very much a self-taught musician. 
and he likes he's a guitarist so obviously has to be centre stage so that was me out of the picture straight away no sibling rivalry here at all Steve um, and uh, so it was a bit rockier really and he'd been working with some different people also my foster brother Richard Newman who's Tony Newman's son who used to be in a he used to play with T-Rex and Bowie and he was a session drummer he now well he was playing with the Everly Brothers um, so that was Uncle Tony who was bonkers and Rich was also living in London and he was just the, he is the most amazing rock drummer. He played with Rory Gallagher. He's recently played with Paul Rogers. He's a fantastic drummer, real energy about him. And so basically we treated it more like a band situation, if you see what I mean. So we rehearsed up the songs as a band and it was a bit less overdubby and more bandy. But we used, we used some of, we used some of Pete Smith's, tracks as well so it was a it was a real mixture had you been writing i know you've been writing poetry were you did you start to write poetry when you were young or is that something that came later i'm just wondering how your that that process of writing lyrics and writing songs where that really came from and where that started um, well i think um really all, all of my song most you could say 98 percent of my songs from day one have come from the words um, and I think it's taken me quite a long time to actually as you say find my voice musically because I didn't really have a concept of genres and I know that sounds a bit mad but I didn't think oh no I want to be a blues singer or no I want to be a I want to be a pop singer um, I didn't really I wasn't keen on popular music which was the 80s you know wasn't really that keen on punk rock I didn't quite get that um, I loved the fashion um, and some of the attitude, but I was quite a gentle person, really. Um, so I was writing philosophy, a massive Stevie Wonder fan. So I think I kind of picked up on that kind of spread, spread the love vibe in music, you know. So it was about creating music that had an idea and a philosophy behind it and so the words were really important to me and that's what came first the words always came first um and then the music came afterwards and it took me a long time I think to understand musically songwriting how to craft a song and how for it to work musically I mean if we go back though to that uh first album the first single off that album um didn't really move too much and I remember that uh, you've told in interviews that even when Stop came out that I've, I'm not sure if it was when Stop came out or it was when the first single came out that the the BBC didn't play it no, yet not you were played in yeah, Europe no. sorry yeah, that's right yeah no that's right that's right the BBC didn't pick it up they didn't pick up any of my my music I think possibly uh, had something to do with the fact that my dad and uncle Tony uh, were blacklisted uh, by the BBC because they went to, I think it was the Eurovision Song Contest, and my mum and Tony's wife were doing backing vocals. And I, I, I got this vague idea of a story where they went into the Groven House Hotel and fish-hooked all the tablecloths together and laid, and laid them on the floor. And then when everyone was sat down, they pulled them tight so that when the waiters came round, all the tablecloths came off. Now that could just be a completely made-up story, but that's what I heard. And I don't. I think my dad may have possibly misbehaved, and so 
you know, getting, they, the BBC never really wanted to play my stuff. I mean, it's different now because obviously I've known a lot of these people for years and obviously have been on radio shows and stuff. But it took for Stop to go to number one in about, I think it was about seven countries before they actually would play on the radio in England. So your success initially was in Europe. Do, have you ever thought about why it was Europe that took to you? I think, I think it was because the record company worked bloody hard at marketing and promoting it. I don't think that success in music, if I'm really honest, has got that much to do with the music. I really don't. I think that if a record company picks something up, they can sell it if they want to. Um, depends on whether they've got a strong opinion about something. Um, I, I don't think I, I probably didn't do myself any favours because I was quite outspoken and, and I, well, I didn't think I was, obviously, but, but I certainly wasn't, I was like, well, no, I'm not doing that. That's rubbish. Why would I want to do that? You know, so it's kind of, I didn't, wasn't really up for playing the game. Didn't care if I was famous or not. I wanted people to hear my music, but I was very happy that I'd made a record and I didn't really care how many people heard it. So uh, from their point of view, I probably wasn't an awful lot of use. <laughs> I mean, you were you were played to death with Stop on MTV around yeah. Europe. You know, that yeah. was, uh, you know, I remember that vividly because obviously sitting in the office, I'd <laughs> see you, you know, 20 times a day. Uh, um, oh, how did you feel about that image of you? Because a video, you know, a three-minute or four-minute video presents the image of an artist which is in that video and reinforces that particular image. So for the wider public, you are that person, as yeah. Madonna was that person in Like a Virgin. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it is this yeah. reinforcement, and it may not be the person. So I just wondered how you felt about your image in the video and whether that felt like you at all and if that was un uncomfortable then. I love your question, Steve. I love this. This is great. You, it's really like, you know, you, obviously your years at MTV are, or just in the music industry, it's just great. You're, you're completely connected to it all. It's fabulous. I love it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically I, when I turned up, when I first went to the record company, I was a bit goth, what would have been goth, although such a thing didn't exist. I loved vintage old long black clothes and I had a big black floppy hat I used to wear and I was incredibly shy incredibly shy and really didn't like myself very much you know so actually this whole thing of you know and makeup I had a couple of bad experiences with makeup artists um who were like oh god you know what we're going to do here because I I didn't went to the beauty parlor I didn't give a shit about whether I had hairy eyebrows or you know, I just wasn't really, wasn't where my priorities lay at all. So I found the whole thing quite difficult. But, you know, I'm a quick learner. And um, I realised that, you know, I was in it. This is what I was doing. I was promoting a record. It's a business. I am now a can of beans. Uh, so I need to behave and do as I'm told, because this is my job. I've signed up for this, you know. So I think... The image of me in stop has got absolutely nothing to do with me at all. And it does not in any way reflect who I was at the time. And that's it for part one. Do listen to part two. And if you enjoyed it, please rate it and tell your friends about this podcast. See you next time.